for the God who is true. So it's an advantage, but in no way, it's not a great advantage. And he went on to say, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this a, a little bit earlier in the chapter. People who haven't read the Bible, who do not have the Bible, do by nature things required by the Bible. Well, they're a Bible for themselves, even though they do not have the Bible, since they show that the requirements of the Bible are written on their hearts. It's possible for someone who never read a word of Scripture to know what's right and to know what's wrong. He said there's a, there's a really not all that helpful at all. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, by following the rules. Rather, through the rules, we just become conscious of what a mess we are. That's not exactly how Paul put it, but that's what he meant. There's some other disadvantages to being a person who thinks we know what's right and what's wrong, who thinks we know what the Bible says, because we've all been taught the Bible by someone else, and what if they got it wrong? After all, you think of some of the conflicts that Jesus had with the scribes and the Pharisees who were very intent on following the law, on following the rules in his day. Think of the times that they told him that he was abusing the Sabbath, and he said, you just don't understand what the Sabbath is. You've got the rule, but you don't understand it. And that's why he said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It was kind of a backhanded compliment. They knew what they ought to be doing in a basic way, but they had also vastly misinterpreted things that they thought they ought to be doing. There's one final disadvantage, I think, to being a person who knows, who knows all the rules being a person who's, who's been well-trained in religious thought and expectation. And that is that to be such a person can leave us feeling very satisfied with the fact that we know what's right and what's wrong. That we alone in all of this world of sinful, awful people, that we know how you ought to live. And Really, the world should be grateful that it has people like us to tell them what they ought to be doing. I want to read from the message part of, uh, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. Joy? I, I want to reread something that Joy read to you, but I want to read it out of the message because I think that you will miss Paul's sarcasm if you just read it out of a translation that you're used to reading it out of. So where does that put us? Do Jews get a better break? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm on the wrong. I'm in completely the wrong place. If, you, if you're brought up Jewish, don't assume you can lean back on the arms of your religion and take it easy, feeling smug because you're an insider to God's revelation, a connoisseur of the best things of God, Informed on the latest doctrines, I have a special word of caution for you who are sure that you have it all together yourselves. 
And because you know God's revealed world inside and out, feel qualified to guide others through their blind alleys and dark nights and confused emotions to God. While you are guiding others, who is going to guide you? I'm quite serious. While preaching, don't steal, are you going to rob people blind? Who would suspect you? The same with adultery. The same with idolatry. I'll tell you, this is really true. You can get by with almost anything if you front it with eloquent talk about God and his law. The line from scripture, it is because of you that the outsiders are down on God, shows it's an old problem that isn't going away. Uh, it would be so nice to read this chapter and think Paul was just criticizing the Jews for their assurance that they knew what was right. For their cockiness in things spiritual and moral. Couldn't possibly be about you or me, could it? I served a church before I came here to Spring Garden that was in a a town with a large retirement community. And so at one point, I had seven different retired pastors in my congregation. Let me tell you, that will keep you on your toes. <laughs> and uh, from time to time, these uh, retired pastors would fill in for the pastor pastor like, like I'm doing for Sam and Greg today. And I remember one time in particular, one of these guys uh, who frankly I always thought was pretty satisfied with himself, uh, was, was talking, and I don't even remember the context, but he said, I want you to know that a drop of alcohol has never passed these lips. He was obviously quite happy about that. Now, I'm going to pretend for a minute that his wife's name was Nancy. It wasn't, but in order to protect the innocent, that's what we're going to pretend. And Nancy was sitting just kind of right down here in front. And he said, a drop of alcohol has never passed through these lips. Now, there was a time when Nancy and I were out to dinner at a fancy restaurant, and they offered us a free wine tasting. I told the server that a drop of alcohol had never passed these lips and never would. Now, Nancy, she had a taste. But when I stand before the judgment seat, I will be able to say a drop of alcohol has never passed these lips. Well, I was sitting there, and let me tell you that a drop of alcohol has, in fact, once or twice, made its way past these lips when I wasn't looking. And as someone who has once or twice sipped on alcohol, I thought, if I were you, buddy, I would be far less worried about the alcohol and far more worried about the fact that you just threw your wife under a bus in front of an entire Baptist congregation. Uh, I wish I could say I've never said anything that would embarrass my wife in public. But all have sinned and fall short the glory of God. <laughs> right, honey? 
I had someone who knows me really well when they found out I was talking about this famous passage from Paul about sin who said, uh, I can't believe it. Those pastors, they set you up. They finally got you talking about sin. And I think I've been talking about sin for a long time. It's just that I think a lot of people don't understand what sin is. If you went to people on the street and you said, can you describe to me what sin is? I, I, I think most of those people, and maybe most of the people sitting here now would say, sin is breaking God's rules. Sin is doing things God told us not to do. And I don't think that's what sin is. I think sin is something much deeper than that. Much more troublesome and destructive than that. I think that sin is being broken. Sin is believing that we're not enough. And out of that feeling of not being enough, doing things to try to numb our pain at not being enough that end up hurting us and hurting others. If you remember that story of Adam and Eve out in the garden, Eve ate the apple because she was convinced by a snake that she wasn't enough. That she needed to somehow be more than she was to be one with God. And then Adam ate the fruit true. And no one needed to tell Adam and Eve that they ought to be miserable because now they're sinners, that they ought to feel bad about it. They were already pretty, they were so miserable, they went and they hid in the bushes so that God couldn't find them and see what they had done. Because they were so much not enough, how could God possibly still love them? I don't believe that we inherit sin the way that we inherit eye color from our parents, but I do believe that we inherit sin. We inherit sin because every generation has been broken. Our parents were broken. Our teachers were broken. Our pastors were broken. And out of their brokenness, they said things and they did things that left us knowing we're not enough, and we became broken. And we passed on the hurt of being broken to our children and our friends and our students and our employees and all the people in our lives too. And the cycle of sin continues generation after generation after generation. And the last thing we need is for someone to tell us we ought to feel bad about it. We already feel so bad about it, we can't get ourselves out of the bushes. We need to be saved from it. We need a solution to it. We need something that will break the cycle of brokenness in us. And it will never be a list of rules. I don't care how long or how biblical your list of rules is. The Jews were up to 638. And in case that wasn't enough, they had a number of subsets of rules in order to clarify the 638. 
And they were still stealing and lying and being greedy for what other people had. In fact, Paul makes it really clear to us. No one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law, by following the rules. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We become conscious of how broken and messed up we are. A list of rules has never made anyone holy. Never. If you want to be a holy person, you need more than a rule book. What is it? What's the solution? Well, unfortunately, that's further on in the book of Romans, and that's not the text that the pastors gave me to talk about today. But there is just a little hint of it here. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly and his circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. The solution to this problem of sin that afflicts us all is to become awakened to God's love for us. To become filled with God's spirit. To be so taken with God that our brokenness and the temptations that come with it gradually dim. The solution to our sin and our brokenness is never a code that you can write down. It's always a God that you can know. The solution to our sins is not more discipline, it's more prayer, it's more communion. It's more connection. Do you know something? I've never been at home in churches that had a lot of rules. I've been in churches that had a lot of rules, but I've never been at home there. And you know why? I always kind of knew deep in my heart it was a matter of time before they figured me out. I always knew sooner and later they were going to find out who I really was. How could I be at home there? Rules never make a church home. They make it unsafe. You start putting a lot of rules around who can be at home in Spring Garden, and soon you've got the people who have allowed a sip of alcohol to slip through their lips to feel unsafe there, who make the people who haven't feel unsafe. Rules never make us at home. They only make us in fear. 
When Debbie and I, when, when I retired from being the pastor at Spring Garden, and De- Debbie and I spent six months or so going to other churches because we didn't feel like it was fair to the new crop of pastors who are excellent, by the way, uh, for, for us to hang around and be saddled with all of my history. And I've got to tell you, it was like Moses wandering in the wilderness. Do you know why you're home for me? Because you know I'm just Gene. You know that I've been a Christian leader for a long time, and you know at the same time that I am no better than any one of you. The thing that Paul is trying to say here, the main point he's trying to say is that everybody has sinned. The most religious person has sinned. The most irreligious person has sinned. Everybody needs help. And it's not altogether impossible that the most religious person is also the worst sinner. The reason I'm at home with you is because you know I'm not perfect. Those of you that have sat in meetings with me know it better than most. And yet you love me. Now, I don't want to disappoint you, but I don't think you're perfect. There are one or two of you that are close. I'm not going to mention any names. Don't want to embarrass Marion Cameron down here. I know you're not perfect. What makes us at home with each other is that we accept that about one another. And that when we fail, as I have failed, sometimes fairly publicly, when we fail, instead of meeting each other with judgment, we meet each other with empathy. And help. At least I've experienced that. I hope you've experienced it too. Because. It's what makes us home. I hope to God. There's never a list of rules. For what it means to be part of Spring Garden. We do have some values though. They're not rules, they're just kind of ways that help us think about and understand how we can live together in community. And here's one of them. You can find all of these somewhere out there. (laughs) I could have told you three years ago, where can they find them, Greg? You can find them in Delve, okay? You can find them on the back page of Delve. But here's one that I think is relevant to what we've read today. We believe in God who is our center. Therefore, where we are on the journey is less important than that we are moving towards a deeper relationship with Christ. We believe and participate in God's redemptive work in all people, which gives us the freedom to come as we are and to accept others as they are. We each are on a unique journey to become who God has created us to be. Please, God, 
May it always be so. Thanks, Jean. As we continue uh, to reflect on God and, and on uh, the word that Jean uh, brought to us and um, respond to God, um, I invite you to um, join us in responding through, um, through song and through prayer. Um, so please, if you're uh, able, uh, please stand uh, with us as we sing. Yeah. 
this is our prayer, Lord, that you uh, would show yourself to us. That Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal yourself to us. That we could know you. And not simply facts about you. That we could know you in, in an experiential knowledge of love. That we may find ourselves in the midst of you, embraced and surrounded by a purity of love. Lord, we don't want to be the most religious people who live legalistically, but yet are so far from you. We want to be a people who know you. We want to live for you, and we, we want to uh, seek to live in you and, and for you in the world. So we do ask, God, that you would help us, that as we, as we seek and strive to live for you, that you would continually remind us of who you are, that we would live out uh, grace, not the condemnation of legalism. So we offer you ourselves in the wholeness of our being, our minds, our bodies, our spirits, our hearts. Uh, we offer all of who we are, all that we have uh, to you, that you would, uh, asking that you would reveal yourself and continue to reveal yourself uh, to us. Um, amen. So we uh, will sing one uh, last song, um, part of our uh, worship, our response that God is offering of ourselves and in the wholeness of our being, which part of that is financial. So um, if you uh, wish to uh, worship through giving of offering uh, today, there are QR codes in your pews online. Uh, there's a box uh, in the foyer at the back um, if you wish uh, to worship in that way. If you are visiting with us, we do hope you feel uh, no obligation. Uh, your presence with us is a gift to us, and so um, feel no obligation to, to uh, give. Um, but yet, if it's, uh, if it's a, a part of your worship this morning, too, you obviously are welcome to um, do so. Um, let's continue to offer ourselves uh, to God with one last song. Spirit. 